Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories today. Israeli forces free two hostages held in Rafah. More in the overnight rescue operation and a terrorist data center found under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in the critical care unit. It's his second hospitalization in a month. What the Pentagon is saying about his condition. The Senate moves forward a $95 billion bill to provide aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. A final vote is expected later this week, but Republicans still have concerns. Two off-duty officers in Houston neutralize a shooter at celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's church. No fatalities have been reported. Amazon secures streaming rights for an NFL playoff game as Elon Musk changes the location of incorporation for his Neuralink company. That and more with the host of Entity Business. A rare overtime Super Bowl win for the Kansas City Chiefs yesterday. We have fan reactions. And happy Lunar New Year! NTD visits New York City's largest Chinatown for parade highlights celebrating the Year of the Dragon. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Monday. Today is February 12th. We're starting off today with breaking news overnight. Israel's military says special forces rescued two hostages early this morning on an overnight mission in Rafah. Israel says the two men are both in good health and were sent to Sheba Medical Center in Tel Aviv for further examination. The IDF says an airstrike was carried out to allow extraction. It says the joint operation was in collaboration with Israel's security agency and Israel po Israeli police. This after President Biden told Israel's prime minister yesterday that a military operation in Rafah should not proceed without a plan for the safety of civilians sheltering there. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on today's rescue. 60-year-old Fernando Simon Marman and 70-year-old Louis Har are back in Israel. The IDF says the two men were being held on the second floor of a building in Rafah, breached with an explosive charge during the raid under heavy exchanges of gunfire with surrounding buildings. An IDF spokesman says the operation was planned for some time and that conditions needed to be right. He says an airstrike was carried out to allow special forces to be extracted. President Biden told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Sunday Israel should not launch a military operation in Rafah without a plan to ensure safety for the roughly one million people sheltering there. Netanyahu's office says it ordered the military to develop an evacuation plan for Rafah and to destroy four Hamas battalions deployed there. The White House says ongoing hostage release efforts were discussed, with an emphasis on the need to capitalize on progress in negotiations, along with humanitarian aid. Egypt warned of dire consequences Sunday should Israel launch a military assault on Rafah along its border. Israel says its forces found a Hamas data center 60 feet under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. The IDF says intelligence from interrogations, computers and maps led to a tunnel shaft near an UNRWA school over 700 yards long. Combat engineers dug down 26 feet to get access since it had been blocked. The military says it found servers, electrical infrastructure, multiple blast doors, offices and living quarters inside, as well as large quantities of weapons and explosives hidden in the UN agency's offices. In Israel, police sealed off Jerusalem's old city Sunday after reports of an attempted stabbing. Police say they neutralized the suspect who tried to stab an officer. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
Here for an assessment of Israel's final push in Gaza and its impact on relations with Egypt is David Wormser, a senior analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. David, thank you for being here with us today. AP reports that if Israel invades Rafah, Egypt will abandon a major peace treaty with Israel. Yet according to Israeli Army Radio, Egypt has conveyed that those reports are not true. Which do you suspect is the case here? Well, I think that uh, you just hit it right on in the latter part, which was, uh, you're, you're right, I don't think that Egypt will really abandon the peace treaty. It's done that before. In 1982, in the 1982 war, Egypt actually cut off its diplomatic relations that were called its ambassador, but then it returned them a few months later. The peace treaty is so deeply in Egypt's interest at this point that I really don't see it ultimately threatened. But at the same time, Egypt has its interests that are, that are definitely uh, driving it to at least publicly take a fairly strong position. But I think I would, I would consider that to be more for public consumption. Okay, well, that is good to know that Camp David Accords has been around for 45 years, and that's definitely something that is important to increase the stability of the region right now. Does Israel have a credible and executable plan, as Biden puts it, for military operation in Rafah that will not be disastrous for the one million people who are sheltering there? Uh, yeah, no, I, they do. Uh, they, they have uh, finished the full amount of military planning that they needed to do to execute the operation from a military point of view. They're right now in the process of finalizing their civilian evacuation plan. Prime Minister yesterday made it very clear that he buys into what the United States is saying, that there needs to be protection for the one million plus civilians. So I think the Israelis will do that uh, in the next few days. They've given, from everything we can tell, they've given the Palestinians about a week to two to move out. And they've set up structures where they can move out too. And I think they're setting up structures of distribution and reception of these civilians in other parts of Gaza. So I do believe the Israelis have a plan. I do believe in the next few days you'll see it begin to be uh, uh, implemented. Relief is just so important at this juncture. Now, age agencies say that an assault on Rafah would be catastrophic. And Israel has told Gazans to flee south prior to earlier bombardments, but they don't seem to have any obvious place to go right now. Will Prime Minister Netanyahu's plan to evacuate civilians to the north of Rafah be feasible? Yes, I think, I think it is feasible, and I think you'll see in the next few days it's beginning to be implemented. A lot of these aid, what we're beginning to find is a lot of these aid organizations were complicit with Hamas. And as a result, there is a despair. This is the last act for Hamas. If Israel goes into Rafiyaf and to the Philadelphia corridor, which is attached to Rafiyaf in the south, uh, it is over. That, is, that means that uh, Hamas basically loses the last remnant of its control, the last remnants of its forces. So the loudness of Hamas and its allies whether it's Qatar, whether it's uh, UNRWA or other aid organizations, UN members, what we're seeing is how deeply intertwined these international aid organizations were with Hamas, and therefore right now they're the loudest. But I would, I would look to what happens rather than what they threaten or what they, what they in their uh, despair are saying. Israel has done this a number of times in the last few months in Gaza. They know how to move these people. They're getting good at it. And uh, they will have it, I'm sure in the next two to three days, you'll start seeing it go into action. 
definitely a last stand here for Hamas. And, you know, going back to these relations between Israel and Egypt, something important to note here is that the Israeli army radio was saying that Egypt has no problem with an assault on Rafah as long as there's not mass displacement into the Sinai of these Palestinians, whereas Egypt's foreign ministry says that there is no such blessing for anything like that. Prime Minister Netanyahu says victory is within reach and they're going to take down the last Hamas battalions which are in Rafah. So what challenges does that offensive have? Well, yes, I mean, Egypt says this because it, it actually dislikes Hamas and is more threatened by Hamas than even Israel because it's a Muslim Brotherhood organization, uh, which this current government in Egypt had to suppress, overthrow a government run by them and then suppress it. So they're threat they want Israel to win, but they can't admit that publicly. They also are terrified of one to two million Palestinians crossing over the border into Egypt. Uh, that could destabilize Egypt. So they're very serious about sealing that border, which is why you're seeing these troops move to the north and tanks move to the north. Uh, but, but that is one of the big challenges for Israel, is not to do this in a way that destabilizes Egypt. And I think under the table, you've seen a lot of cooperation and discussions between Israel and Egypt that will manage this. But Egypt can't publicly admit that. So you're seeing the public... Uh, anger, but private cooperation. And that, I think, addresses one of the main challenges Israel faces going into Rafah, other than the operational ones that you've seen everywhere else in Gaza. The tremendous tunnel system, the use of civilian organizations as human shields are even integrated into the military structure, the uh, hiding behind schools and civilians and hospitals. That all is also in Rafah, but the Israelis now have done this in four or five cities in Gaza. They're getting pretty good at it without hurting anybody. And in fact, yesterday they took a hospital that had a huge structure underneath it. And the hospital didn't yes. even stop operations, medical operations during the attack. All very good points here. Thank you so much for the analysis. David Wormser, analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. And we'll speak to an IDF spokesperson for an on-the-ground update in just a moment. But first, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been transferred to the critical care unit after being taken to the hospital on Sunday. He's being treated for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. That's according to the Pentagon. It's not clear how long Austin will remain hospitalized at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. The defense secretary has transferred his duties to his deputy, according to Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder. Ryder also said that the White House and members of Congress have been notified of Austin's condition. Austin was criticized last month for failing to disclose a cancer diagnosis and subsequent hospitalizations, including to President Biden. In a rare Sunday session, the Democrat-led Senate moved closer to passing a bill to provide aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. It cleared a key procedural hurdle, one of the last before final vote. The $95 billion bill is facing opposition from some Republicans. The Senate voted 67 to 27 to move the legislation forward. 18 Republicans joined Democrats to advance the bill. Proponents of the bill hope it will be approved by Tuesday. The bill includes $61 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and nearly $5 billion for U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan. It would also provide over $9 billion in humanitarian aid to civilians in Gaza and the West Bank, Ukraine, and other conflict zones around the globe. 
If America doesn't assist Ukraine, Putin is all too likely to succeed, as President Zelensky repeatedly has reminded us. Our allies and partners are hoping that the indispensable nation, the leader of the free world, has the resolve to continue. But there are still hurdles to be overcome. The bill faces staunch opposition from former President Trump and other Republicans. Senator Mike Lee spoke for nearly four hours on Saturday. He argued the bill ought to be subject to an amendment process, something he said was promised when the bill was first advanced. He expressed concerns with the bill again on Sunday. Uh, we all have rights to bring these amendments forward, and we ought to be able to have them considered. Lee is worried that providing humanitarian assistance to Gaza would benefit Hamas. His amendment would prevent the bill from funding any UN organization operating in the Strip. The bill is now headed for a floor vote, expected later this week. If it passes, it will move to the GOP-led House of Representatives, where it faces an uncertain future. Speaker Mike Johnson has indicated that he could try and split the aid provisions into separate measures once the bill arrives from the Senate. But a standalone bill for Israel fell to pass in the House last week, amid opposition from both Democrats and Republicans. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former President Donald Trump talked up his accomplishments at a rally in South Carolina on Saturday. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us the highlights. Former President Trump basked in the support of his South Carolina supporters. The former commander-in-chief praised the defeat of the bipartisan border bill. Mike Johnson did a very good job, and the whole group did a great job in Congress. We crushed it. We saved America from yet another horrific Biden betrayal. Trump told those in attendance the bill would have allowed millions of illegal immigrants a year to enter the U.S., including people from countries like China, Libya, Yemen, and Iran. There are very few women coming in. They're almost all men, 18 to 25. That means fighting age. That's fighting age. So they have something planned, and uh, we're not going to stand for it. They are destroying our country. This group of fascists, they're destroying our country. The former president described himself as a man who drives a hard bargain, with America winning as a result. But as president, I ended the NAFTA disaster, the worst trade deal ever made, and replaced it with a brand new USMCA. That's Mexico and Canada who are ripping us off. I know they're our neighbors, but they were ripping us off. The best trade deal they say ever made in our country. Trump recalled how he forced NATO members to meet their defense spending targets. Well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody, you never saw more money pour in. Trump painted a dark picture of Democrat-controlled cities, overrun by thieves, and reiterated his support for law enforcement. Several South Carolina lawmakers were present to support the former president. Congressman Russell Fry says presidential candidate Nikki Haley should have dropped out of the race after New Hampshire. I don't think you can go to Nevada and lose to nobody um, and continue to have a viable race. Resident Rod Smith says the former South Carolina governor is fine, but needs to wait her turn. Because Trump is the true leader and he needs to get in there and get things straightened out. Local Republican Party Chairman Verd Odom says Trump keeping his promises made a big impression on him. Said he was going to uh, secure the border. He did. The economy, best economy in the history of the United States. Resident Katie Ambrose says Trump wants what's best for America. I don't want my grandson going off to wars. 
and with him, we had peace through strength. We had a great economy. We had immigration under control. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with levels of support double that of Haley in the state. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A majority of Americans in a new ABC News Ipsos poll felt both Trump and Biden are too old for another term. Close to 60% surveyed shared that opinion. Only around a tenth believed neither is too old. And about a quarter said only Biden is too old. 3% said only Trump. The poll found Trump had more Americans trust on topics like the economy, crime, inflation, immigration and the border. Biden had more trust on abortion, climate change, health care, and education. In total, 86% of the survey group said Biden is too old. 62% felt the same way about Trump. Biden would be 82 years old if re-elected when his second term starts. Trump would be 78. Congressman Mike Gallagher announcing he won't run for re-election. The decision comes four days after he was one of only four House Republicans to vote against impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The congressman had said that impeachment would set a dangerous new precedent that would be used against future Republican administrations. Gallagher is a four-term House member and former Marine Corps intelligence officer. He chairs the House Select Committee on Competition with China. Gallagher wrote in a statement Saturday, quote, electoral politics was never supposed to be a career, and trust me, Congress is no place to grow old. He also noted that the authors of the Constitution had not intended elective office to be a lifetime. And coming up, Israel's military rescues two hostages held in Rafah during an overnight mission, and a Hamas terrorist data center found hidden 60 feet under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. We bring in IDF spokesman Peter Lerner for more on the operations in the Southern Strip. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appointing a new ground force commander yesterday after a major military shakeup. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Israel's military says it rescued two hostages early this morning during an overnight operation in Rafah. Israel says the two men are both in good health and were sent to Sheba Medical Center in Tel Aviv for further examination. The IDF over the weekend said it, was, it has found a Hamas data center under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. The military says it found servers, electricity connected to the main building, multiple blast doors, offices and living quarters inside, as well as weapons and explosives hidden in UNRWA's offices. And to hear more about this, we are bringing in Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, a spokesperson for the IDF. Good morning, Lieutenant Colonel. I want to quickly touch on the latest updates first. So you just, of course, successfully, as we just heard, freed two hostages. Tell me more about the operation you carried out in such a densely populated area that at the same time is um, a Hamas stronghold. Good morning, Evelyn. Indeed, in the early hours of this morning here in Israel, uh, the IDF, together with special forces from the Israeli police force and the Shin Bet Israel Security Agency, uh, conducted a very precise intelligence-based 
um, operation to rescue two hostages, Louis Har and Fernandi Ma Fernando Manra Mamran. Um, it was um, in a very, as you pointed out, very densely populated area, in an area where Hamas have established um, key capabilities, and I would say in a densely civilian area as well. The operation took place in a residential uh, building in a, uh, on the second floor of this building. Uh, we breached the, the, the premises, uh, went in with uh, the special forces, and indeed uh, shielded the hostages as we took out the enemy. On our extraction, on the way out, we came under heavy fire from all around the area. The forces came under fire, taking hits. Uh, luckily, um, only one soldier was injured uh, lightly, wounded lightly. Um, but yes, then we transferred them to hospital after an initial um, uh, medical uh, survey, um, took them to hospital. And I can report that this morning they are in good condition. i um, very happy to be back in the hands of their family together with their loved ones. Um, it's a relief for so many here in Israel and also a little uh, piece of hope. Uh, but we keep in mind the 134 Israelis that remain in the clutches of Hamas and the families of those 134 remain torn to pieces over uh, four months now um, of being held hostage. So That's the military right. operation, the war is ongoing and we will continue until we achieve our goals. Yes, thank you for those updates. Of course, a little bit of uh, good news coming out of uh, Gaza today. So you also found a Hamas data center uh, moving on to uh, the over the weekend update. So under UNRWA headquarters. Um, so tell me more about what you found inside and its significance uh, to Hamas and its operations. So this is an intentionally positioned beneath the compound of the UNRWA headquarters, the main UN body in uh, operating in Gaza. Um, intentionally, Hamas intentionally put it beneath their uh, facilities to try and protect it from perhaps airstrikes or so, uh, jeopardizing the humanitarian effort, but also leaching off electricity, water to power and give them sustainability beneath ground. The data center, as you rightly pointed out, was the beating heart of uh, Hamas's intelligence capabilities. And we understand from what we've uh, caught and seized um, the substance is of great importance to Hamas. It will lead us to uh, greater exposure, a greater understanding, and basically it will, it will make Hamas transparent to us and to our capabilities. Um, you know, of course, this is a, just goes to show the extent of Hamas's actions, how they decided to intentionally position these capabilities on and beneath UN facilities, how they have intentionally jeopardized the sanctity of international symbols, symbols and emblems mm. like the UN. Um, but this is just Hamas. It's the same, a same day, a, a, a same reality that we know. It's just a different day. This is what we've been experiencing over the last four months. It's not a huge surprise to us. What is surprising is that the United Nations, UNRWA, did not um, find out about it, did not try to find out about it beforehand. Uh, and unfortunately has been passive about it even after we've exposed the reality, the grim reality of Hamas's uh, terrible intentions. Um, so we need to move forward. We will continue. Sorry. No, that's an interesting point that you raised because um, so that means that UNRWA, as far as you know, has not known about the tunnel underneath um, because obviously there is a lot of questions now about UNRWA and the employees, the scrutiny is um, 
internationally. So did you find any indication that UNRWA has maybe known or that there were an UNRWA employees that would have been supportive of the tunnels in any kind of way? So here's what we know about UNRWA specifically regarding the 7th of October. There are at least 12 employees that were particip that participated or, or were called upon to participate in the massacre of the 7th of October. Uh, we know um, that uh, UNRWA itself is, as an organization, part of the Palestinian fabric of society in Gaza, and therefore it is not a huge surprise that there, should, that, that there could be uh, Hamas uh, operatives, terrorists, supporters within its ranks. Um, we are not surprised that um, Hamas will take advantage of it. And what we found with, was a very clear connection between this data center and uh, UNRWA facilities was the electricity, the power, the cables that come from the headquarters above to their data center beneath ground. So there must be at least somebody within their ranks that knew about this. The question is who? The question is how do we move on from here? The question is what role can UNRWA play as a um, uh, a non-connected, a a, um, a a player in this uh, conflict or in the, the uh, giving assistance of humanitarian aid without it being deeply connected for, uh, uh, with Hamas? Um, I, I'm, I'm, they are still, from our perspective, delivering humanitarian aid. Uh, but there is, of course, deep concern, uh, extremely deep concern, that they do not really know what's going on. And if they do not know, then they are complicit in the crimes of the 7th of October mm. and everything that's come out after that. They need to be very strong in their message that this cannot be tolerated. They need to be very, very clear in their steps that they take in order to prevent this from happening ever again. Uh, Israel is uh, the, the, pol the political echelon has sent a very clear message. From our perspective, the military is determined to dismantle tunnels that are abusing these these areas and seeking out and hunting down the terrorists that are perhaps taking refuge, uh, hiding or launching attacks from these premises. Got it. Lieutenant Colonel, I have to move on to the next question since I want to um, put this in before we have to end this. So because as we hear um, the operations recently are moving into Rafah, many are worried um, about where the more than one million people can actually go if that should happen and also how aid could enter the Gaza Strip because of the Rafah Strip, uh, uh, Rafah crossing being such an so essential in that. So are there any plans in place now concerning these issues? Uh, the government has instructed the IDF to devise a plan to both operate within the Rafah area, but also to evacuate civilians from the Rafah area. As we've proven throughout the last four months, in the operations, in the war effort, we have done so extensively time and time again to get people out of harm's way. I've spoken about it here, Evelyn, extensively. And so this would not be something uh, um, new from our perspective. Uh, the situation, of course, is one where we will seek out Hamas wherever they are. Uh, we have um, to change the paradigm. We have to make sure Hamas never have the power of government ever again to conduct the atrocities of the 7th of October. Um, we can't trust them because they've said uh, that they would do so. So we can't trust them with the powers of government. We need to change the paradigm. Got it. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Evelyn. 
And moving on to Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appointed his former first deputy defense minister as the new commander of Ukraine's ground forces, according to a decree published yesterday. Oleksandr Pavliuk, a lieutenant general who served in the ministry role for a year, is replacing Colonel General Alexander Sirsky. Zelensky also announced five other senior military appointments on Saturday. This fills out a rebooted team to bolster Ukraine's defense against Russia's nearly two-year-old invasion. Ukraine has a shortage of men and equipment as it heads into 2024. The country has made few battleground gains throughout the past year. It also faces a disruption in military aid from the U.S., its biggest backer. And coming up, details from a shooting at a megachurch in Houston. A woman armed with a rifle was neutralized by two off-duty officers. She had a young child with her who's now in critical condition. And a suspect who allegedly shot a tourist in Times Square last week and fired at police. Officials are now identifying the 15-year-old illegal immigrant. Get that story coming up. Welcome back. Two off-duty officers in Houston, Texas, took down an active shooter yesterday at Pastor Joel Austin's megachurch. Police said the shooter entered the church armed with a long rifle and accompanied by a small child. Authorities said a woman in her early 30s entered Lakewood Church, which has a capacity of more than 16,000, and began firing shortly before 2 p.m. local time on Sunday. She was armed with a long rifle, in a trench coat with a backpack, accompanied by a small child, approximately four to five years old. Uh, once she entered, uh, at some point she began to fire. Houston Police Chief Troy Finner said two off-duty officers present killed the shooter before she could kill anyone inside the church, which was preparing to hold a service. Finner said two people were injured, including the child who was with the shooter. Officials said they are working to understand the child's relationship to the shooter. Both officers, officer and agent, uh, engaged, uh, striking the female. Uh, she's deceased here on the scene. Unfortunately, a five-year-old kid was hit and is in critical condition at our local hospital. A man in his 50s sustained a non-critical leg injury and was being treated at a local hospital. The identity of the shooter has not yet been released. Police said she claimed to have a bomb and sprayed an unknown substance on the ground. No explosives were found upon searching her backpack and her car. Eyewitnesses described hearing gunfire and watching people flee the church auditorium. They, they were repetitive, boom, 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 and I yelled, Mom! But uh, then there are the second shot, uh, they, they start to say the people to move from the, uh, from the auditorium. Televangelist Joel Osteen, the senior pastor at the church, thanked police officers and first responders, saying that things could have gone a lot worse. We were in between services going into the Spanish service, so... You know, if, they're, you know, if there's anything good of it, you know what, they're, they, 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 she didn't get in there and do a whole lot worse damage. So we thank God for that. He's watching over all of us. Police are investigating the motive behind the attack. And police have identified the 15-year-old illegal immigrant who allegedly shot a tourist in Times Square last week. Jesus Figueroa from Venezuela is being charged as an adult. 
He's also accused of firing at a police officer while fleeing. The teen is considered a suspect in an armed robbery in the Bronx and a separate shooting in Times Square last month as well. Police say the shooter and two teenage classmates were shoplifting a jacket from a store. They were confronted by a security guard who asked to see a receipt. When the trio couldn't produce one, the guard took back the merchandise. That's when the teenager allegedly pulled out a 45 caliber handgun and fired at her. The bullet missed the worker but grazed a 38-year-old tourist in line to buy a pair of sneakers. And police are searching for whoever completely destroyed a Waymo autonomous vehicle in San Francisco's Chinatown district. Take a look at these pictures showing the aftermath of the vandalism. Authorities say a group of about a dozen people on Saturday night spray-painted the car, smashed the windows, and set the interior on fire. That fire completely burned the car to the ground. Investigators say there were no passengers inside the vehicle. No injuries were reported. More than 20 million people are under a winter storm watch across the Northeast. A nor'easter is expected to develop early this week and could dump as much as a foot of snow in some areas by the end of Tuesday. That includes Hartford, Connecticut, Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Binghamton, New York by Tuesday morning. Winds on the northern edge of the storm will be blasting the coastline of the northeast with gusts hitting up to 45 miles per hour. And a fiery scene was captured of passengers escaping a burning plane on Friday. Two people were killed in the crash landing of a private jet on a southwest Florida highway. Is there anybody else in there? The pilots and co-pilot were killed in the crash in Naples. The two passengers and one crew member survived. They were taken to the hospital for treatment. The plane took off from Ohio State University Airport and was minutes away from landing when the pilots told air traffic control that two engines had malfunctioned. The plane hit two passenger cars, but only one driver was reported with minor injuries. And heading to break, up next, Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Fans react. Hear what they have to say about their favorite team. And Amazon wins exclusive streaming rights for an NFL playoff game. And Elon Musk facing legal issues over his Twitter takeover. Details with the host of NTD Business. And Musk moves Neuralink's incorporation to Nevada after facing issues from a Delaware judge related to a $55 billion Tesla pay package. That's up next. Welcome back. The big game last night, the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers facing off in Las Vegas. In a rare Super Bowl overtime, the Chiefs won with a field goal to become the winners two years in a row. We have reactions from fans. America's biggest sports spectacular has come and gone for another year. It ended in a thrilling 25-22 overtime victory for the Kansas City Chiefs over the San Francisco 49ers. The game was marked by the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good saw two record-setting field goal kicks in the same game. 49ers kickers Jake Moody had a 55-yard record breaking field goal early in the game. 
Later, Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker made a 57-yard field goal for a new record. The bag came from missed opportunities from both teams. The Chiefs had a drop interception and some key penalties. The 49ers had a top defensive player get injured. They also had to settle for a field goal inside the red zone. The ugly came with the Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey had a physical confrontation with coach Andy Reid. Kansas City fans were ecstatic about their team's repeat win. Local fans who didn't make it to the Super Bowl in Las Vegas were glad to be at home to celebrate the win. They came four years ago, they won. I'm back. It's awesome. This is the place to be. It's better than Vegas because security's not as bad and it's a lot cheaper. And Mahomes is awesome. Because this is the best place to be a Chiefs. Right here, baby. Chiefs kingdom all day. The Super Bowl extravaganza was full of excitement. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes received the Super Bowl MVP award. The NFL bargaining agreement says winning team players receive $164,000 each. Each losing team player earns $89,000. Football season is now officially over until preseason games start in August. For fans, August can't come too soon. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from Amazon and the NFL. Don, what do you have for us today? All right, so as we've seen, the NFL uh, Super Bowl still in millions of Americans' minds right now. So I have a couple updates on that, uh, which you just mentioned uh, has to do with Amazon as, and betting as well. So uh, other than that, a, a quick update on Elon Musk's Neuralink. So, uh, Super Bowl is behind us right now, but looking forward, uh, Amazon landed the, the exclusive rights to stream one National Football League playoff game next season on its prime video platform. And this is according to multiple news outlets, uh, citing people with knowledge of the situation. So according to the Wall Street Journal, Amazon uh, Prime Video is going to pay more than $110 million for just a single uh, game uh, of the rights to stream it. Um, it's going to be the second straight year that an important NFL game will be uh, carried exclusively on a streaming platform. And the deal comes actually after uh, less than a month, uh, NBC Universal's Peacock became the first ever platform to exclusively uh, live stream an NFL game. So I think a lot of people will be tuning in on Amazon's platform to watch that game. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a slight change of topic here because this, as you you have mentioned betting, and the host city this time obviously was Las Vegas. So did we see an increase in betting on the game? Right. So the sports gambling industry is uh, preparing for a record-breaking inflow of money as uh, Americans uh, bet on yesterday's Super Bowl in Las Vegas. So according to uh, some estimates, a record 67 million American adults are expected to bet on that game. And the amount of money we're talking about here is a combined $23 billion. And this is about a 35% increase over last year. So while this is good news, right, for the gambling industry, but it also poses a risk to many uh, Americans. Uh, that's because nearly 7 million Americans suffer from gambling addiction. And at the same time, uh, the rise in sports gambling on the internet and phone has accelerated the prevalence of gambling addiction. Um, now, I, I don't know if you know this, but it's actually very easy for people to access online sports gambling platforms. Uh, you can now bet very large sums of money without ever stepping outside your room. Um, but you know, legalized uh, sports betting is actually relative new, relatively new in the US. Uh, in 2018, the Supreme Court struck down a federal law that had effectively banned sports betting in most states. So you know, 
sports betting legal in 48 uh, states and again like i mentioned this is good for the gambling industry but also poses a risk for many americans oh yeah down and reporters have told me that these betting services will actually appeal to college students with their ad targeting campaigns so what else do you have for us about musk's Neuralink? Okay, just a real quick update on that. So if you remember earlier uh, last week, uh, a Delaware judge struck down Musk's pay package of uh, $56 billion uh, for Tesla. And then Musk said he would have a shareholder vote to transfer its state of incorporation to Texas. And Musk said that, you know, never incorporate a company in the state of Delaware, right? So now Musk's uh, brain chip implant company Neuralink changed its location of incorporation from Delaware to uh, Nevada, according to the states, and he's taking steps to cut ties with Delaware. So now the outstanding shares uh, of uh, in the Delaware Corporation will now be incorporated into outstanding shares in the Nevada Corporation. Right, definitely trying to move out all of his companies out of Delaware, which have uh, which he has announced. So um, there's also more news on Elon Musk. Uh, can you fill us in on that as well? All right. So regarding to uh, Elon Musk, uh, on the SEC, a federal judge ordered Elon Musk to testify again uh, in the Securities and Exchange Commission's investigation into his $44 billion takeover of Twitter. The judge gave the regulator and Musk a week to agree on a date and location for the meeting. And Judge Laurel Beeler issued the order on Saturday. The SEC wants to find out whether Musk followed the law uh, when filing required paperwork about his Twitter stock purchases and as well whether his statements in relation to the deal were misleading at all. Now, Musk objected to the SEC's request for an interview, saying that they had met twice already. He also accused the regulator of harassment, and Judge Beeler rejected Musk's argument. She ruled the SEC had authority to issue a subpoena seeking relevant information. If the two parties cannot agree on a date and time for the interview, Beeler said she will hear both sides, uh, then decide for them. Yeah, very, very interesting. Don Ma, host of Entity Business. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stick around. The Year of the Dragon, a big turnout in New York's Flushing neighborhood for the Chinese New Year Parade. See performances, colorful costumes, and a spiritual tradition. Shen Yun Performing Arts delivering three shows in Tucson, Arizona, captivating audience members with traditional Chinese culture. What theatergoers had to say about their experience coming up. Welcome back, everyone, and Happy Lunar New Year, by the way. There were some big celebrations over the weekend. Here yes, the parade in New York City Saturday was really fun. Yeah, it definitely wasn't flushing. Um, this, is, this is a part of Chinatown, New York City. It always has some really exciting events, actually, over these holidays. So. Yeah, and it had really great weather this year and a great turnout. Check it out. 
If you like uplifting marching bands, dragon dances, and traditional costumes, then you'll love the 2024 Chinese Lunar New Year Parade. It's the year of the dragon, and I'm out here in Flushing, New York, where hundreds upon hundreds of people are lining the streets to celebrate, watching countless troops go by, including the Tianguo Marching Band, community organizations, and Falun Dafa, with its lotus boats, lion dancers, and banners. Those lion dances, they're said to bring happiness and good luck if it's a good performance. Lions symbolize power, wisdom, and superiority. So many people came out to show support, and it's really a fun atmosphere, and people are getting ready to see the floats, and there are a lot of community organizations coming out. These are some experienced dragon dance performers. You know, we've done the dragons since 2005. This is almost 20 years for me. Um, yeah, so because I practice Falun Dafa, I have great energy and uh, I keep doing the dragon every year. Going past now is Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, showcasing traditional culture and the virtues of a spiritual tradition from the ancient past. Rich symbolism, smiling faces, and dignified garbs abound as these adherents live by the tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. The dragon dance is said to bring good fortune to the local community. Here's a special message from the patrons. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Happy New Year's. Wait for it. Papa. <laughs> Flushing is a multicultural neighborhood and the Hispanic community has a great showing. People having a great time, you can see it in their faces. The Queen's Public Library came out to celebrate too. And look at those baseball costumes. And NTD and Epic Times made a special appearance and there are the anchors, reporters and show hosts waving. There they go, how much fun they're having. Also over the weekend, Shen Yun Performing Arts took to the stage in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, theater-goers were enthralled by the artist's ability to showcase 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture through dance and music. Shen Yun delivered three shows at the Linda Ronstadt Music Hall in Tucson, Arizona on February 10th and 11th. The New York-based company rekindles 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture through classical Chinese dance and music. Audience members were captivated by the performances. I loved it. It was wonderful. What a cultural experience, and it just applies to all of us what we should be doing in our lives. Just the kindness, compassion that all of us should have for each other. Oh my God, it was so beautiful, and especially the ethnic pieces, um, the cultural ethnic pieces. I absolutely loved the the sleeve dance and the, the yellow blossom dances. And then the Mongolian dance for the men was gorgeous too. I think those were definitely my favorites, but every piece was just magical. Shen Yun creates all new original musical compositions each year. Each performance is accompanied by a live orchestra that combines both Western and Eastern instruments. I love that blend of tradition and then uh, multicultural components, both Western and the Eastern instruments. So that was my favorite part, the music. Just the, the beauty of combining movement and music, it felt, very, it felt very healing to me. So I found it quite interesting when the speakers mentioned it. Paul said specifically later that music is uh, traditionally this medicine because I really believe that it is. <laughs> the essence of ancient Chinese culture and civilization is rooted in spirituality. Shen Ying brings forward these beliefs through their performances. 
I personally um, can relate to that. I think that that is something that we need more of. And, uh, and I am very appreciative to see that it's being given on a larger audience. I'm just very grateful that they take the time and the energy to embrace their beliefs and let it shine throughout the world. It's great. Shenying will perform next at the Orpheum Theater in Phoenix from February 13th to 18th. NTD News, Tucson, Arizona. Sounds like a perfect way to ring a Lunar New Year, if you ask me. Yeah, cool stuff. And I've seen it one year where they had the Dance of the Yi, an ethnic group, and it's just really colorful performance. Oh, awesome. All right, uh, we are heading to the second part of the broadcast, but we'll be right back in a minute or so, so stay tuned. NTD News, the fastest-growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world, expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. This Senate advancing a bill to provide billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, but it's facing opposition from Republican hardliners. What they're asking for. A shooter was neutralized by off-duty officers at celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's megachurch in Texas. The latest details from Houston police. Israeli forces free two hostages held in Rafah. More on the overnight rescue operation and a terrorist data center found under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in the critical care unit. It's his second hospitalization in a month. What the Pentagon is saying about his condition. Former President Trump describing himself as a man who drives a hard bargain at a South Carolina rally this weekend. Other highlights from his speech and what Trump supporters had to say. The 20th annual Puppy Bowl was held yesterday. Did the defending champs win or did the underdogs take home the trophy? This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Monday, February 12th. We're heading to, to, today, to today's top news, I should say. In a rare Sunday session, the Democrat-led Senate moved closer to passing a bill to provide aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. It cleared a key procedural hurdle, one of the last before a final vote. The $95 billion bill is facing opposition from some Republicans. The Senate voted 67 to 27 to move the legislation forward. 18 Republicans joined Democrats to advance the bill. Proponents of the bill hope it will be approved by Tuesday. The bill includes $61 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and nearly $5 billion for U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan. It would also provide over $9 billion in humanitarian aid to civilians in Gaza and the West Bank, Ukraine, and other conflict zones around the globe. If America doesn't assist Ukraine, Putin is all too likely to succeed, as President Zelensky repeatedly has reminded us. Our allies and partners are hoping that the indispensable nation 
the leader of the free world, has the resolve to continue. But there are still hurdles to be overcome. The bill faces staunch opposition from former President Trump and other Republicans. Senator Mike Lee spoke for nearly four hours on Saturday. He argued the bill ought to be subject to an amendment process, something he said was promised when the bill was first advanced. He expressed concerns with the bill again on Sunday. Uh, we all have rights to bring these amendments forward, and we ought to be able to have them considered. Lee is worried that providing humanitarian assistance to Gaza would benefit Hamas. His amendment would prevent the bill from funding any UN organization operating in the Strip. The bill is now headed for a floor vote, expected later this week. If it passes, it will move to the GOP-led House of Representatives, where it faces an uncertain future. Speaker Mike Johnson has indicated that he could try and split the aid provisions into separate measures once the bill arrives from the Senate. But a standalone bill for Israel fell to pass in the House last week, amid opposition from both Democrats and Republicans. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For an update on the border crisis and whether the secret U.S.-Mexico deal is driving down the numbers, we hear from Victor Avila, a retired special agent for HSI ICE and candidate for U.S. Congress in Texas's District 23. Victor, thank you again for coming on the show to talk about this important topic. Can you tell us about this secret deal the U.S. made with Mexico around the time that Secretary of State Antony Blinken went down there? And that did that cut the number of legal immigrants down by half from January through December? That's absolutely right. And I got to tell you, I don't like the way this deal is, uh, the way it's shaping up because of several things. One, uh, the timing of it uh, is very suspect to me. Uh, and yes, we saw the numbers go from 303,000 uh, apprehensions in December to 124,000. And, and I knew that was going to happen uh, because of this deal. So part of this deal of what I can tell you uh, what I've seen on the ground on the border is that um, Mexico is actually holding back the migrants from coming to our uh, border. Not everyone. Uh, we've, we've seen a little bit of increase and in move over to Arizona and California. But as far as Texas is concerned, we've seen, certainly seen a huge drop in numbers. And I'll give you some. In Eagle Pass, we were seeing... Uh, 9,000, 10,000, at one point, 15,000 illegals coming in at one day. That's down from two to 700 per day. And not in that Shelby Park area, but they're coming about 10, 10 miles west of Eagle Pass. And uh, they're still coming, but very trickling through. Uh, so it's a, it's a combination of things, but I think it has to be, we have to realize that what's going on here is politically motivated and it's the Biden administration Obviously, they are in a uh, election year, but so is Mexico. And that's very important. Mexico has presidential elections this June. And I think they made a deal to try to help each other politically with this disaster at the border. It's hurting both countries uh, politically. And, uh, but that's the problem that I have with it. It's not, it's not a deal to help Americans or even to help the Mexican uh, people. It's a deal only to make it look like something is being something's being done about it. But here's the problem, is that the cartels are somewhat cooperating with this at this point. But uh, my sources tell me it's not going to last for long. The Biden administration wants this to continue through November. It might not happen. And these approximately 50,000 illegals will be sent to our border soon. Well, it's so good to have your on-the-ground update here, Victor. And I will point out Breitbart News reported that there was a quid pro quo that Mexico was suggesting during that time of the visit by Blinken, in which 
Mexico would stop the arrival of all these migrants at the U.S. southern border in exchange for the U.S. helping out dictators in Latin America, such as in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. But do you think that Mexico's reported efforts to round up these migrants and bring them south off of the northern border there in Mexico down to maybe the central or southern Mexico is going to just eventually lead to these migrants re-emerging at the southern border? Is it just a temporary problem here? It's absolutely tempor temporary. All indications to me indicated is completely temporary. Um, this is not this is not a, a, a an issue that they solved. That I think the American people want that. But the Biden administration is also already starting to celebrate, saying, "Look at these numbers." But we have to pay close attention to who's coming into our our, our country on the Arizona side and and California side, and we have a lot of special interest aliens (SIAs) as we refer to them in the Department of Homeland Security, uh, uh, that they're making their way through that part, portion of our border as well. And these are individuals that are possibly on the no-fly list, on the terror watch list, and, and something that requires additional vetting here. And uh, the reason I tell you I don't like this is because it's not on behalf of the American people. It's mostly um, a, a band-aid for right now to control the impact of how it looks like and the perception that both countries have been facing. Yeah, public optics are very important surrounding the border. Victor Avila, retired special agent for Homeland Security Investigations ICE, thank you for your time. Thank you. Police have identified the 15-year-old illegal immigrant who, who allegedly shot a tourist in Times Square last week. Jesus Figueroa from Venezuela is being charged as an adult. He's also accused of firing at a police officer while fleeing. The teen is considered a suspect in an armed robbery in the Bronx and a separate shooting in Times Square last month as well. Police say the shooter and two teenage classmates were shoplifting a jacket from a store. They were confronted by a security guard who asked to see a receipt. When the trio couldn't produce one, the guard took back the merchandise. That's when the teenager allegedly pulled out a 45 caliber handgun and fired at her. The bullet missed the worker, but grazed a 38-year-old tourist in line to buy a pair of sneakers. Two off-duty officers in Houston, Texas, took down an active shooter yesterday at Pastor Joel Austin's megachurch. Police said the shooter entered the church on a Sunday, armed with a long rifle and accompanied by a small child. Houston police chief said two off-duty officers present killed the shooter before she could kill anyone inside the church, which was preparing to hold a service. Two people were injured, including the child who was with the shooter. Officials said they are working to understand the child's relationship to the shooter. A man in his 50s sustained a non-critical leg injury and was being treated at a local hospital. The identity of the shooter has not yet been released. Police said she, police said she claimed to have a bomb and sprayed an unknown substance on the ground. No explosives were found upon searching her backpack and her car. Police are investigating the motive behind the attack. And coming up, Israel's military rescued two hostages held in Rafah earlier today during a special overnight mission. And a Hamas terrorist data center is found hidden 60 feet under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. And also coming up, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in the critical care unit. It's his second hospitalization in a month. What the Pentagon is saying about his condition. Former President Trump describing himself as a man who drives a hard bargain 
at a South Carolina rally this weekend. Other highlights from his speech and what Trump supporters had to say. Dog lovers saw a high-scoring game in yesterday's Puppy Bowl. Who took home the trophy, the defending champs or the underdogs? Welcome back. Israel's military says special forces rescued two hostages earlier this morning on an overnight mission in Rafah. Israel says the two men are both in good health and were sent to Sheba Medical Center in Tel Aviv for further examination. The IDF says an airstrike was carried out to allow extraction. It says the joint operation was in collaboration with Israel's security agency and Israeli police. This after President Biden told Israel's prime minister yesterday that a military operation in Rafah should not proceed without a plan for the safety of civilians sheltering there. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on today's rescue. 60-year-old Fernando Simon Marman and 70-year-old Louis Har are back in Israel. The IDF says the two men were being held on the second floor of a building in Rafah, breached with an explosive charge during the raid under heavy exchanges of gunfire with surrounding buildings. An IDF spokesman says the operation was planned for some time and that conditions needed to be right. He says an airstrike was carried out to allow special forces to be extracted. President Biden told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Sunday Israel should not launch a military operation in Rafah without a plan to ensure safety for the roughly one million people sheltering there. Netanyahu's office says it ordered the military to develop an evacuation plan for Rafah and to destroy four Hamas battalions deployed there. The White House says ongoing hostage release efforts were discussed, with an emphasis on the need to capitalize on progress in negotiations, along with humanitarian aid. Egypt warned of dire consequences Sunday should Israel launch a military assault on Rafah along its border. Israel says its forces found a Hamas data center 60 feet under the UN Relief Agency headquarters in Gaza. The IDF says intelligence from interrogations, computers and maps led to a tunnel shaft near an UNRWA school over 700 yards long. Combat engineers dug down 26 feet to get access since it had been blocked. The military says it found servers, electrical infrastructure, multiple blast doors, offices and living quarters inside, as well as large quantities of weapons and explosives hidden in the UN agency's offices. In Israel, police sealed off Jerusalem's old city Sunday after reports of an attempted stabbing. Police say they neutralized the suspect who tried to stab an officer. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And earlier I spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, a spokesperson for the IDF, to learn more about the situation. Uh, the IDF, together with special forces from the Israeli police force and the Shin Bet Israel Security Agency, uh, conducted a very precise intelligence-based um, operation to rescue two hostages, Louis Har and Fernando Mamran. Um, it was um, in a very, as you pointed out, very densely populated area, in an area where Hamas have established um, key capabilities, and I would say in a densely civilian area as well. The operation took place in a residential uh, building in a, uh, on the second floor of this building. Uh, we breached the, the, the premises, uh, went in with uh, the special forces, and indeed uh, shielded the hostages as we took out the enemy. On our extraction, on the way out, we came under heavy fire from all around the area. The forces came under fire, taking hits. Uh, luckily, um, only one soldier was injured 
uh, lightly, wounded lightly. He also found a Hamas data center uh, moving on to uh, the over the weekend update, so under UNRWA headquarters. Um, so tell me more about what you found inside and its significance uh, to Hamas and its operations. So this is an intentionally positioned beneath the compound of the UNRWA headquarters, the main UN body in uh, operating in Gaza. Um, intentionally, Hamas intentionally put it beneath their uh, facilities to try and protect it from perhaps airstrikes or so, uh, jeopardizing the humanitarian effort, but also leeching off electricity, water to power and give them sustainability beneath ground. The data center, as you rightly pointed out, was the beating heart of uh, Hamas's intelligence capabilities. And we understand from what we've uh, caught and seized, um, the substance is of great importance to Hamas. It will lead us to uh, greater exposure, a greater understanding, and basically it will, it will make Hamas transparent to us and to our capabilities. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Evelyn. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been transferred to the critical care unit after being taken to the hospital on Sunday. He's being treated for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. That's according to the Pentagon. It's not clear how long Austin will remain hospitalized at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. The Defense Secretary has transferred his duties to his deputy, according to Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder. Ryder also said that the White House and members of Congress have been notified of Austin's condition. Austin was criticized last month for failing to disclose a cancer diagnosis and subsequent hospitalizations, including to President Biden. Congressman Mike Gallagher announcing he won't run for re-election. The decision comes four days after he was one of only four House Republicans to vote against impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The congressman had said that impeachment would set a dangerous new precedent that would be used against future Republican administrations. Gallagher is a four-term House member and former Marine Corps intelligence officer. He chairs the House Select Committee on Competition with China Gallagher wrote in a Saturday statement, quote, electoral politics was never supposed to be a career. And trust me, Congress is no place to grow old. He also noted that the authors of the Constitution had not intended elective office to be for a lifetime. And former President Donald Trump talked up his accomplishments at a rally in South Carolina on Saturday. And today's Daniel Monahan brings us the highlights. Former President Trump basked in the support of his South Carolina supporters. The former commander-in-chief praised the defeat of the bipartisan border bill. Mike Johnson did a very good job, and the whole group did a great job in Congress. We crushed it. We saved America from yet another horrific Biden betrayal. Trump told those in attendance the bill would have allowed millions of illegal immigrants a year to enter the U.S., including people from countries like China, Libya, Yemen, and Iran. There are very few women coming in. They're almost all men, 18 to 25. That means fighting age. That's fighting age. So they have something planned, and uh, we're not going to stand for it. They are destroying our country. This group of fascists, they're destroying our country. The former president described himself as a man who drives a hard bargain, with America winning as a result. 
But as president, I ended the NAFTA disaster, the worst trade deal ever made, and replaced it with a brand new USMCA. That's Mexico and Canada who are ripping us off. I know they're our neighbors, but they were ripping us off. The best trade deal they say ever made in our country. Trump recalled how he forced NATO members to meet their defense spending targets. Well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody, you never saw more money pour in. Trump painted a dark picture of Democrat-controlled cities, overrun by thieves, and reiterated his support for law enforcement. Several South Carolina lawmakers were present to support the former president. Congressman Russell Fry says presidential candidate Nikki Haley should have dropped out of the race after New Hampshire. I don't think you can go to Nevada and lose to nobody um, and continue to have a viable race. Resident Rod Smith says the former South Carolina governor is fine, but needs to wait her turn. Because Trump is the true leader and he needs to get in there and get things straightened out. Local Republican Party Chairman Verd Odom says Trump keeping his promises made a big impression on him. He said he was going to uh, secure the border, he did. The economy, best economy in the history of the United States. Resident Katie Ambrose says Trump wants what's best for America. I don't want my grandson going off to wars. And with him, we had peace through strength. We had a great economy. We had immigration under control. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with levels of support double that of Haley in the state. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Turning to sports, the big game last night. The Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers faced off in Las Vegas. In a rare Super Bowl overtime, the Chiefs won with a field goal to become the winners two years in a row. It ended in a thrilling 25-22 overtime victory for Kansas City over San Francisco. 49ers kicker Jake Moody had a 55-yard record-breaking field goal early in the game. Later, Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker made a 57-yard field goal for a new record. The 49ers had a top defensive player get injured and had to settle for a field goal inside the red zone. The Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey also had a physical confrontation with coach Andy Reid. And of course, probably just as important, dog lovers get their own big game on uh, Super Bowl Sundays. Yesterday marked Animal Planet's 20th Puppy Bowl. The contest was between defending champs Team Fluff versus Team Ruff. Team Fluff took an early two-touchdown lead. But Team Ruff recovered in the fourth quarter to upset Team Fluff 72-69 and take home the Lombarki Trophy. Mush, an Australian Shepherd mix who faced a key turnover, was named MVP. People love rooting for an underdog. And did I just see a dog just on his hind legs? How oh, Some crazy achievement that right Pretty there. talented. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Very talented in sports. Look at those cuties. And I think, you know, um, the referee, I think, told the media last year that there is a 100% adoption rate each year. Oh, good. Which is so good for the dogs, yeah. Yeah, they need a home. And, you know, Mush, MVP, that's the most valuable pup. Oh, there you go. Right. Congratulations to whoever adopted that guy. All right. Uh, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.